The Lord be with you. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that uh, today that we would uh, be able to continue to be present to your presence. Uh, Lord, you are with us. Your presence is here. And Lord, you are speaking. So tune us in, Lord, to uh, that frequency. Help us to pay attention, Lord, so that we can participate in a greater way in your kingdom and in the life that you call us to. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen? Amen. Um, well, we're in the middle of this uh, Sermon on the Mount series, uh, and um, this is the fifth week, I think, of the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we're going to continue this series all the way to uh, November, through November, uh, which takes us up to the first Sunday of Advent, which is the beginning of the Christian year. So that's like New Year's Sunday. It'll be like the first Sunday of December. It'll be a lot of fun. Um, but uh, really excited about um, the Sermon on the Mount series. I'll say a little bit more about what the Sermon on the Mount is. Uh, but the words that we heard today from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount are some of the most challenging words that Jesus ever said, I think. Um, they're some of the words that uh, people have struggled to interpret um, because they seem so outrageous <laughs> and outlandish uh, when we really think about it. Uh, when I was 10 years old or so, um, I was playing out in the front uh, porch area of my house uh, with my friend from down the street, Andy Wilson. And so uh, Andy Wilson and I had been friends, and one of the things we did that summer a lot of was play G.I. Joes. Anybody like G.I. Joes, those little figurines? Like, they weren't dolls, right? Like, don't call them dolls. They're like action figures, right? And so we had all these vehicles, and we would take our G.I. Joes down to the creek, and, you know, we'd, we'd do, go through all these scenarios, these G.I. Joe scenarios. And anyway, this summer, we were doing G.I. Joes. We were playing G.I. Joes just out on my front porch, um, this one afternoon. The other, th the other thing that happened a lot this summer was um, we ran away from bullies. Um, so I don't know what the deal was this summer, but, um, and I, ne I never had, I always had a secondhand encounter with all the neighborhood bullies, which meant I heard rumors about how bad they were, right? I heard rumors about how wicked uh, and how uh, cruel uh, these bullies were. I heard rumors about people getting beat up and, you know, my friend said this and yeah, that kind of thing. So these guys had this reputation in the, you know, in the neighborhood. And um, the, the cruelest bully of all, the one who had, I think, probably the worst reputation was a kid who was a few years older than us named Sam Silverthorne. <laughs> right? Like, I don't want to say he's destined to be a bully, but Sam Silverthorne is the perfect name for a bully. Anyway, so Sam Silverthorne, he had this reputation for being this really cruel guy, you know. And there were a lot of times that summer where we'd, you know, we'd just be playing G.I. Joes or riding our bikes around, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, and somebody would be like, Sam Silverthorne's coming. And everybody just get on their bikes and just run, you know, just, just bike as fast as they could away from Sam Silverthorne. One time he took one of our G.I. Joe figures, action figures, because we ran. We were playing G.I. Joes at the creek, and we ran, and he just took it and threw it into the creek. I mean, you know, like what in the world is up with this guy? So anyway, we, my friend Andy Wilson and I, we were playing G.I. Joe's in my front porch, right? This isn't the creek. It feels like a safe place, my front porch. And Sam Silverthorne rides his bike up through. Now, our yard was kind of a shortcut where I grew up in Minnesota. Our yard was a shortcut from one street to the next. And, and it's kind of the, you know, this in between the yards, like a lot of kids would ride their bikes through our, through our yard. And then Sam Silverthorne rode his bike through our yard, and then he just cut across our driveway a little bit. And, you know, we saw him, we saw, you know, out, he came from behind the, where the wall to the garage was. 
We're sitting there playing G.I. Joe's and Sam Silverthorne. I remember my stomach was just like, oh, shoot. What's going to happen? But I sort of felt safe because I was on my porch. I thought, Sam, Sam won't you know, breach this barrier here. He won't come this close and do anything to us. And he looked over at us, and he looked back, and I thought, whew, he's just going to go home. His house was just down the street from ours, and so he just rode his bike on. And all of a sudden, out of my, Andy was, Wilson was over to my right, and all of a sudden I hear him say, hey, Sam, and my heart just sank. <laughs> I was like, what are you doing, bro? Like, what's going on right now? And he says, hey, Sam, they don't want you riding through their, your, their lawn like that. And Sam stops, and he looks at us. And I, I, I think I said something like, it's fine. Like, because <laughs> that was never, like, my parents never said anything like that. They never said that they minded that at all. So I, I was like, first of all, Andy, what are you doing? Right? Like, that's not even true. Like, why would you say that? Why would you provoke the bully who is now paying attention to us? And so he said it, and he just, you know, Andy just sat there, and Sam throws his bike down. He starts walking toward us, and I'm just, like, terrified. I'm just beside myself thinking, I didn't say it. I didn't say anything. I didn't, you know what I mean? I'm being somewhat cowardly. I'm not defending my friend. I'm basically trying to distance myself from him, thinking, holy cow, what's going to happen now? And um, Sam walks up to Andy. Andy's just standing his ground. And uh, I kid you not, Sam just hauled off and kicked him in the stomach. It was the, one of the most violent things I've ever seen, like, in person in my life. Uh, it just made me sick. It makes me sick to think about it now. I mean, I heard his foot, like, like through the air. I, I think I heard it, and it just, just hit Andy's stomach. And I was just like, holy cow, right? And I think Sam sort of figured, like, I'm on this guy's porch, you know, kicking this kid in the stomach. And so Sam just ran. Right, got on his bike and just you know took off. And Andy, in the meantime, is just going, oh, you know, he start, he's just moaning. And I'm like, holy, cow, is he gonna die? Like I wasn't sure of internal bleeding. I wasn't sure what was going on. And so you know, Andy, you know, walks into the house and you know we open up the door and he's going, oh, right. And my mom's like, what in the world happened? I was like, Sam, Sam kicked him. Who's Sam? Sam from down the street. Why did he kick him? I don't know. Anyway, so we're just kind of freaking out. Andy's like, whoa. Right? And, he, and, he, and he gets into our kitchen, and my mom had just sort of done the dishes, and the kitchen counter was nice and clean, and he puts both of his hands on the counter and goes, and he just throws up all over the counter. And it was tacos. Like, he had, number one, eaten recently enough that I saw what he had eaten. It was tacos. I knew it was tacos. And number two, I was like, how many tacos did this kid eat? Like, there's so much throw up. It was amazing. It was all over the counter. So anyway, moving on. Um, so I was reflecting on that story as I, was, as I was thinking about this passage this week about enemies um, because I, it, it felt remarkable to me that Andy would say anything. Why would he say something? Knowing that this could be the result tacos on the counter, right? Like, why would he say something to Sam when it looked like Sam was going to ignore us and pass on by, right? There was something that compelled my friend to taunt the bully, right? Andy had been wronged by this guy before. He'd been beat up, he'd been terrorized, he'd been traumatized probably. And so Andy felt that he couldn't let it go. 
he had to say something. He had to get back at Sam the only way he knew how, which was to taunt him, thinking he was safe on my parents' porch, right? And then, interestingly, Sam couldn't let it go once he got taunted, right? Sam couldn't let it go. Sam was driving his bike, and, you know, one option would be to say, you know, forget you kids, I'm going home. But Sam couldn't let it go either. He had to throw his bike down. He had to retaliate in the only way that he knew how, which was to use physical violence. They were both compelled to act out this game. Uh, and I want to suggest that it's the easiest thing, it's a game that gets played out every day. The easiest thing in the world is to make an enemy. Um, we do it all the time. Antagonisms, rivalries. This is how politicians rally their base. Like the easiest way to kind of carve out this identity for the people that you want to vote for you and kind of be with you in your policies is to basically create an enemy and say, look at how terrible these people are. And everybody says, yeah, those people are terrible. We, want, we, need, we need to do something about this. We need to be the people who are thinking the right things about this. Uh, it's how sports works. I mean, it's a little bit more benign in sports, but sports are fun partly, not just like to say, oh, isn't it great that my team is doing well, but sports are fun partly because there's usually an arch rival that you just like, you know, the, the fans of that other team that are just like, ugh, those people are terrible, right? So if it's... Butler fans, like who, who's the arch rival? Like who, who is, you know, what's that? Uh, Xavier. Xavier, right? Pfft, those guys, ugh, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And that's, when, yeah. and that's when the fight broke out in the middle of the sermon. <laughs> anyway. Um, so this is an easy, right? This happens all the time. It's easy for me, I think, uh, social media and the internet is where this plays out for me, right? I find it very easy to get, like, embroiled in an argument on the internet. Um, and it's, I mean, I don't know, like, that's a weird thing. Uh, but that's, that, that, that's what it's like for me. Um, it, and why is it? It feels good, right, to shake my head at these idiots, right? SMH. I had to look that up. I was like, what does that mean that people say that? Oh, shake my head. Like, the, the indi- like right? You're looking at somebody who's saying something that you don't agree with that you think is idiotic, and you shake your head. Ugh, oh, those people. Right? Even if I don't post something on social media, I find I like reading through the arguments. Why? It feels good to feel like I'm right about something, right? I'm on the right side of this issue. Those people are idiots. It's easy to make enemies. Easiest way to carve out a sense of identity is to make an enemy and say, we're not them. At least we're not them. And we have such a fear of difference and such a fear of, of losing this identity that we've carved out that we don't know who we would be without our enemies. That's part of the reason it's so easy to keep enemies is that we don't know who we would be without them. It's scary to try to figure out what that would look like. But in the gospel passage we read today, Jesus shows us a different way. He proclaims something that's difficult for us to hear, but is the way of the kingdom. In a world that makes others into enemies to be excluded and eliminated so that we can maintain power and privilege, we proclaim today the good news that Jesus Christ has inaugurated a new kingdom where the undiscriminating love of God makes our enemies into neighbors to be included and to be invited to the table so we can all share in the abundance of the kingdom together. So we're in the middle of this Sermon on the Mount series. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is the, the king, we're calling it the Kingdom Manifesto. This is the constitution of the new 
kingdom that Jesus inaugurated. So sometimes kingdom feels like, you know, uh, like a word that we don't know much about, but think about it as a new politics. It's a new government. It's Jesus saying, hey, all the governments and the politics that you guys know, I'm declaring something new. And a politic is just a way of being in the world. So Jesus is saying there's a new political arrangement that's available to you. And I'm proclaiming it to you. And this is how he starts, right? In Matthew 4, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And then he goes into the Sermon on the Mount. And so the Sermon on the Mount is how we repent. It's how we repent our way into the kingdom. It's how we think, oh, this is wonderful news. Jesus has a new arrangement, a new political arrangement for us to be part of. Great. How do we participate in that? How do we repent and believe? And Jesus gives us examples in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, here's what it looks like. You've heard it said, but I, but I say to you, this is the new reality that I'm calling you into. The Sermon on the Mount is the shape of our repentance. And uh, the, the kind of the crux of the sermon is really in, in chapter 5, verse 20, when Jesus says, unless, I tr- truly I tell you, unless your righteousness goes beyond or surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. And we've talked about this, uh, but it's worth repeating that um, what Jesus is talking about here is not being stricter. He's not saying, well, it used to be that adultery was bad, but now adultery and lust are bad. He's not saying that. What he's saying is that we have to enter into a new dimension of righteousness if we're going to really live in the kingdom. So we've been using this diagram. Ella, can you put that up? What Jesus is saying is that the righteousness of the Pharisees is only skin deep. It's surface level. It only deals with words and works. It deals with knowledge, and it deals with behavior. And they try to just say, if, if I just keep the Sabbath, right? If I just don't murder, if I just don't commit adultery, then I can do whatever I want, or I can use the law to maintain power and privilege over others. And Jesus is saying, that's actually not deep enough. Your righteousness has to go beyond, which doesn't mean doubling down on doctrine and deeds, doubling down on words and works. It means going underneath the surface. The reason that's blue is that it's supposed to be water, right? So underneath this, get it? (laughs) So underneath the surface is where we need to go. Go ahead, Ella. To our wants, not just about words and works, but our wants, our desires. And this is what Jesus is saying over and over in these passages that we've been looking at, murder, adultery, uh, lust, divorce, oaths, and now enemies. Like Jesus is saying, Look, it's not enough to just say, well, I didn't kill him, (laughs) so I'm righteous. He's saying, no, the kingdom way of life gets down below the surface into our desires. And Jesus is using these as examples. You can go to the next slide, Ella. Jesus is using these as examples of this kind of righteousness. And why is this? Jesus knows that what you want is basically who you are. What you want is basically who you are. It's not what you know, it's not what you do, it's what you want. And that's where we need to be transformed, in our desires. And so what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount is not saying, hey, you guys better grit your teeth and behave better. Jesus is saying, actually, no, I'm inviting you into a kind of life where you're going to be transformed in the depths of your being so that what you want out of life and for yourself and for others is transformed. And then out of that wanter, Righteousness just flows. So, like, was it hard for Jesus to be good? No. He just wanted that. And we'll talk about this. Does that make sense? That Jesus uh, is inviting us into this kind of beyond righteousness that affects not just what we know and what we do, but who we are 
based on what we want. So our desires are transformed. Uh, and so th- th- that's what he's saying when he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, and think skin-deep, surface-level righteousness, but I say to you, whole life righteousness. This is what actually, this is what it looks like for somebody who wants to live in the kingdom. And today's passage brings this section uh, where Jesus is doing this, right? So I'm trying to give you the picture. He says, your righteousness has to surpass. This is what he means. It has to go into your wants. And then he gives examples. So you've heard it said, but I say to you. And that's the, this, today's passage is the end of that part of the sermon. And he brings it to this conclusion with two more examples and a final statement. So let's take a look at these things, uh, and then we'll respond together. The first one is eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I say to you, don't resist an evil person. Um, Jesus was referring to what's, uh, what's called the lex talionis, which is the law of like kind. And it was basically meant to limit the escalation of violence and to, and to prevent vigilante justice. That's what it was meant to do. And a lot of our Western legal system is based on eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It's not wrong. It's not bad. It limits the escalation of violence. That's good. It, li- it prevents vigilante justice. That's also good. But Jesus says it's not enough. That's skin deep. That's surface level. If you want to get into the heart, I say to you, Don't resist an evil person. Become a different kind of person, somebody who isn't focused on vengeance, but who's focused on connection, staying connected, being with uh, other people. So he gets into the level of our wants. Become the kind of person who who isn't interested in getting even. Revenge doesn't occur to them. Become that kind of person. That's what he's saying. Don't resist an evil person. Don't retaliate. Don't get even. And then he gives these examples, four quick examples. It's really important to remember in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is giving us examples and illustrations. He's not giving us rules. So he's not saying, if somebody slaps you, the only thing that you can ever do is turn the other cheek. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, for example, and he's using everyday situations so that people understand the radical nature of what he's talking about. So if somebody slaps you, don't retaliate, turn the other cheek. If somebody sues you for your shirt, give them your coat too. You know, you need anything else, bro? Like that's kind of the, you know, that's kind of the, that's the, that's what he's urging them to do. If someone forces you to go one mile and Roman soldiers would do this, like, hey, carry my bag, I'm tired. And you'd have to do it, right? He'd say, go with them two miles. Say, I'm feeling good. I've been working out. Do you want to go, you want to go another mile? Um, don't turn away from the person who asked you. And taken together, they present this picture of a person that Jesus is presenting who cares more about being connected than getting what's theirs, than getting even, than getting what they deserve. Um, I had a conversation uh, a few weeks ago with someone, a business owner uh, in the area, and he was talking to me about all kinds of stuff. And he, he eventually mentioned, he said, you know, I, I'm uh, moving out of this, this place that uh, I've been renting. And I said, I'm moving out because they cheated me. This, the, these guys who own this place, they cheated me out of a lot of money. And I was like, oh yeah? He seemed really upset about it, you know? And he said, you know what I'm doing? I was like, what are you doing? And he said, well, because my buddy is gonna buy their business, and then you know what he's gonna do? I was like, what is he gonna do? He's gonna fire everybody. He said, and then he said this, I'm a good person, but don't cross me. Right? I was like, oh. All right, then. I mean, I didn't say much to him, but, but, but I can imagine Jesus saying, right, in that situation. That's a modern-day situation. And Jesus saying, hey, if someone cheats you out of a lot of money in a business deal, ask if they need anything else. Right? 
that, I mean, it offends us, right, to think about that. Well, wait a minute, what about this? What, you know, and we have to answer those questions. But that's the radical nature of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, look, you don't need to be the person who executes justice on your own behalf. You probably can't trust yourself to do it well. It'll probably be revenge. You're probably going to be indulging something in your heart that isn't, doesn't look like the kingdom. So the only way that this is possible for me to just you know, give my coat when somebody sues me for my shirt, to, give, to ask, to basically walk away from a bad business deal and not try to get even, is if I trust that God will actually bring justice. That God himself is going to bring justice in his own time and in his own way, and I can leave it with him. That's how it's possible for us to do this. See, the good news about the final judgment, that's part of the doctrine of Christianity, like there is going to be a final judgment where everybody, like everything you've ever done, like you're, you're going to give an account for it. Not that you won't be forgiven, but you'll give an account. You'll have, to talk, you'll, have to, you'll have to give an account for every careless word, Jesus says. The good news about that is that nobody gets away with anything. I don't need to execute justice on my own behalf because nobody's getting away with anything. I can trust God with this. Eventually, God will sort it out in his way and in his time. Which leads us to the second example and really the heart of this whole thing, which is love. Jesus says, you've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. This call to love is the heart of Christianity. Love is the heart of Christianity. It's the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. And all of these examples that Jesus has been giving are byproducts of a heart that's been filled with love, of a heart that's been immersed in the love of God, which is why Paul can say in Romans 13.10, love is the fulfillment of the law. You want to fulfill the law? Love. That's the fulfillment of the law. And the ultimate test of love is not what you do with those who are like you and who are friendly to you, but what you do with your enemies what you do with those who are not like you, what you do with those who seem threatening to you, what you do with those who are perhaps even actively seeking to harm you. And so Jesus' hearers in his day would have thought about their enemies. The Pharisees, the enemy of the Pharisees were the sinners. These, these people who are not following the law, they're preventing God from coming and making Israel great again. They are preventing this great thing from happening, these sinners, these people who are who are just ignoring the law, right? That was the enemy of the Pharisees. They thought it was patriotic to hate their enemies, right? How are we going to make Israel great if these sinners are running around offending God and not letting God do... Not, God's not coming to us, and it's your fault. We need to do something about these sinners, these tax collectors, these immoral people. The Romans were another enemy of their day, these pagan overlords, these people who were oppressing them, these people who were saying, we're the king of the world and there's nothing you can do about it. They were another enemy that, that Israel wanted to defeat, they wanted to crush, they wanted to leverage God on their behalf to say, we're better than you, we're going to overthrow you. It feels, and, and hating, hating enemies is patriotic in our day too, it feels appropriate, doesn't it? It feels appropriate to be outraged when those people do what, the, what they do. It feels appropriate to be outraged. We see things in the news, right? We pass them along to our friends. We text our friends and we say, can you believe these idiots? SMH. <laughs> Shake my head. America would be a great place again except for these 
fill in the blank. Illegal immigrants. Maybe that's who it is for you. Maybe it's these racists. Maybe that's why, that's why we don't have a great place to live. Maybe it's these liberals. Maybe they're the enemies. Maybe it's these Trump supporters. Maybe they're the enemies. It's the easiest thing in the world to make an enemy. We carve out an identity based on what we're against and who we don't like and who we're not like. But Jesus calls us into a different way in a world that makes others into enemies to be excluded and eliminated so that we can gain and maintain power and privilege, we proclaim today the good news that Jesus Christ has inaugurated a new kingdom where the undiscriminating love of God makes our enemies into neighbors to be included and invited to the table so that we can all share in the abundance of the kingdom together. So Jesus says in this new kingdom, we love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. This isn't just refraining from harming them. This is actively loving them, seeking their good. And why do we do this? This isn't a way to get our enemies to stop being idiots. (laughs) It's not a way to get our enemies to stop hurting us. Jesus just says, you should do this so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Who does what? He causes his son to shine on the evil and the good. He sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. Be like your father who loves indiscriminately. He just loves. Everybody who's in front of him, he loves. Love flows out of him because love is who he is. God is love. And love isn't something that you dispense based on good works or not. He sends his son on everyone. He sends the reign to everyone. This is who God is. in, in, In one sense, you could say he can't help himself. God just can't help himself. He loves his his friends. He loves his enemies. This is what he do. Hater's going to hate, but lover's going to love. I was looking forward to saying that. Can you tell? Lover's going to love. Thanks. Lover's going to love, and we get to become lovers like God, indiscriminate lovers, people who are so filled with love that that's just what comes out of us. So I don't need to define you as an enemy. I don't need to figure out who's to blame. I can love. I can be like my Father in heaven. And that, he sums it all up with this final uh, command. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, perfect here doesn't mean like really strict rule following or flawless performance. That's not what he's saying. The word here, if you're interested in Greek, is teleos, which just means whole or complete, mature. And the picture here is that it sums up everything that Jesus has been saying when he's saying Don't be someone who's divided. Don't be somebody who is on the outside obeying the law in the words and in the works. But in the the wants, you're far from God. Don't be somebody like that. Be a whole person. Be filled with love inside and out, just like God. Let God transform the entirety of your being into love. That's what he's saying. It's summing everything up and saying, be like your father. And this isn't an oppressive command. This isn't like, you better fix this. You better figure this out. It's more like an invitation where Jesus is saying, look, I will do this in you, but you need to offer your body as a living sacrifice. I will do this in you. You can be filled with the same kind of love as the love of God. 1 John 4.18 says, perfect love drives out fear. And really the core of enemy making is fear. It's fear. We're afraid. That's why we make enemies. We're afraid. We're afraid of losing identity. We're afraid of losing our stuff. 
We're afraid of losing something. And so we make an enemy and we say, we're going to keep our stuff from those people who are not like us. But Jesus invites us into a different kind of kingdom where we don't need to worry about that. We can be filled with love and love indiscriminately. That's what being perfect, so to speak, is all about. Be complete. Don't be one thing on the inside and another on the outside. Be a whole person filled with love like your father. So this is it. The kingdom of God is at hand here today. Repent and believe the good news. You can turn away from your enemy-making ways and learn the way of undiscriminating love. God's love will turn you into a lover. And lovers going to love even their enemies. In a world that makes others into enemies to be excluded and eliminated so that we can gain and maintain power and privilege, we proclaim today the good news that Jesus Christ has inaugurated a new kingdom where the undiscriminating love of God makes our enemies into neighbors to be included and invited to the table so that we can all share in the abundance of the kingdom together. How do we do this? It's by God's grace alone, but we must offer our bodies to that grace. Dallas Willard used to say it this way, you can't do it alone, but it will not be done for you. We have to respond to the good news. That's why Jesus proclaims it and then says, repent and believe. So we have to respond by offering our bodies. This all happens by grace, but it is the inevitable result of what happens when, God's, when we avail ourselves to God's grace. Just end with a couple quotes here from a guy named Thomas Merton. To say that I am made in the image of God is to say that love is the reason for my existence, for God is love. If I, who am without love, cannot become love unless love identifies me with himself, but if he sends his own love himself to act and love in me and in all that I do, then I shall be transformed. I shall discover who I am and shall possess my true identity by losing myself in him. That's what happens when we offer our bodies to God. And so for me, here's, way, here's how I'm doing this this week, uh, recently. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop using social media to look up arguments and feel like I'm on the right side of those things, finding idiots to shake my head at. <laughs> um, instead, I want to have more actual conversations with my neighbors and with my friends. I can't invite and include somebody on social media. All I can do on social media, all you can do on social media is pontificate or argue. That's all you can do. You can't have a meal with those people, but I can with my neighbors, so I want to do more of that to invite them to my table. Who's your enemy today? Maybe it's someone uh, or a group that you look at with disgust. Maybe somebody that you feel like, oh, those idiots, SMH, right? Maybe they're your enemies today. Uh, It could be people who are strange or unfamiliar or intimidating. Sometimes people of a different race. Sometimes people of a different uh, religion. Or people of a different class. They feel intimidating or strange to you. They might be your enemies, somebody that you blame. It could be somebody who has literally hurt you. It could be someone who has shown you contempt, who's seeking to do you harm. Maybe they're your enemies today. I want us to respond today. First, we're going to pray here in a bit. But first, I just want us to um, practice together, holding that enemy in your mind together with Jesus. Jesus is present here, right? Let's be, let's be, let's sit with Jesus for a while and let's bring our enemy into the room. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? 
So just in the quietness and in the silence, don't try to say anything. Don't try to tell Jesus how bad they are. <laughs> don't, don't tell Jesus what you want them to do with your enemy. Just let your enemy and Jesus and you be here together. Okay? So let's take some time in quietness. Who is it for you? See if you can draw a face into your mind. Maybe it's a bully at school. Maybe it's somebody who's mistreated you. Somebody that you're angry with or upset with. And let's just hold them in our minds together with Jesus for a few moments.